You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, I have told you before a story about a man on a desert island, stranded, alone, and forgotten. Uh, one day, he sees a ship going by after many years as rescuers. And they uh, get onto the island. They, they ask him, how did, you, how did you manage to survive? And he's all excited. He's telling them all about what he ate and how he did it. And uh, They see these three huts, and they say, what's with the three grass huts? And the guy says, oh, th- this one is where I uh, sleep. It's kind of been my home. And, uh, and, and this one is where I, uh, I, where I worship. That's my church. I go there on Sunday. And they go, well, what's the third one? And he goes, oh, that's my old church. <laughs> and, and, and what the story illustrates to me is that relationships are hard. Uh, and the thing that's hard about a relationship isn't always just the thing in the other person. It's sometimes the thing inside myself. And so when my relationships get challenged, how can I keep from checking out How can I stay in and go deep? And I want to have a seven-week conversation with you and with me, because I'm a learner alongside of you in this subject, on uh, about our relationships. About uh, how our relationships can not necessarily get easier, but how they can get better. Um, About not so much how our partner or the other person in the relationship could change, but how God might use the relationship to change me, to change you. And we're going to look at this uh, together through the lens of the Apostle John, who writes a letter in the New Testament called 1 John. And the reason for that is that John has got this reputation of being the apostle of love. Um, that's who he is. And John writes the letter, 1 John, to a group of people who are challenged in a relationship. They're actually going through a relational crisis. And you might be uh, challenged by a relationship this morning as well. And so there's something to learn from from John. Let me just give you a little bit of background on the on the letter. The letter itself doesn't tell us who wrote it, but uh, there's really uh, good reason to believe that the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is the same author of this letter. It was probably written around AD 90, and uh, to believers who were in Asia Minor, which is where modern day Turkey is. What we do know from the letter itself is that they were being challenged by relationship. In fact. They're undergoing a split right now. So the church is going through a split. Uh, a significant faction of that group said, sayonara, uh, we're leaving this church. I don't know if they're going to find another church or no church at all. Uh, but this is a community that's having an existential crisis, a uh, crisis in the church. And John wants these friends of his to, to wait. He's, he's saying, such a wait, wait, wait. And before you go there, and before you lose hope there, I want you to know there's another way. God and Jesus Christ has given us a resource for challenging relationships, and that resource is what I would call this morning tangible love. I'm going to talk to you today about tangible love. We're going to look at the introduction to uh, this letter and see how John sets this whole uh, thing up in the first paragraph of his letter. So pull out your Bible, please, to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> if you're able, would you stand with me? Uh, let's read aloud together. If you're grabbing the black book, it's on page 989. 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. John writes, we declare to you what was from the beginning, 
what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Now, keep the Bible open. This is a little bit of a thick paragraph, isn't it? What I want to do is what most commentators do, and right off the bat, I just want to boil it down to John's main point. Okay, let's just step back for a second. All those words, what is he really trying to communicate? I think he's trying to say this. Jesus Christ wants to touch your relationships. I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. Jesus Christ wants to touch, wants to have a hands-on experience with your relationships. We declare the word to you so that you may share the joy of fellowship, and our fellowship is with God. One commentator, John Stott, notes, this is somewhat surprising here, but John, the guy who wrote the gospel, uh, is stating this in terms not of salvation, but of fellowship. He, in other words, he's going to talk about eternal life, but if you want to know how to get eternal life, you read the gospel. If you want to know what to do with eternal life in relationships, you read the epistle. See what I'm saying? Because where this goes is, he says, fellowship. I'm telling you these things so that you may fellowship, right? which is relationship. And our fellowship is with God, the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I want you to know that Jesus will touch your relationships this morning. How, you may ask. How could he do that? Well, John's answer, and he says, we've heard about this, we've seen it, we've even touched it, is what I would call tangible love. That's the resource. Tangible love. Now, I want to just explore that with you today. I want to look at two sides of tangible love. There are two words, and I want to help you understand what John means when he writes about tangible love. This is going to set up the conversation for the next seven weeks. What is it? The first thing tangible love is, is it's love. Okay, that wasn't hard to see, was it? Uh, but not any love, it's God's love. There are a lot of different ideas out there about what the word love means, and this is love as God would see it. God's vision of love. Remember, uh, John knows that we have seen God in Jesus Christ. There's an echo here, if you read this carefully, of the way John begins his gospel. Remember the beginning of the gospel, John? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And now he's kind of writing with that same um, uh, echoes of that, uh, that same introduction here in this letter. So in the background of his mind is this profound truth that we can see God in the eyes of Jesus. This is the incarnation, the Word made flesh. But I want you to notice this little bit of a side point here that uh, John has this very pastoral, pastoral sense about him that he respects his readers' unbelief. I mean, he doesn't just dive right in and say, do you know that Jesus is the incarnate God? Uh, it is because I tell you so. Do, do, no, he doesn't. He, he actually makes room for their doubt. 
He, he, he understands this is an extraordinary claim that God has become flesh and blood in Jesus Christ. And he allows some space for them to want to have some sense of empirical evidence. See what he says. He says, what we've heard, uh, we've heard Jesus speak and claim to be God. What we've seen, we, we've seen signs in his life that, of things that only God could do if they really happened. We've, and then ultimately the, 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 the truest of all senses, touch. He says, we've, we've touched him. You're probably referring to the touch of, of the risen Jesus Christ. Because what they knew in the first century they know t- is what we know today, and that's that dead people don't come back to life. They just don't. So if a dead man came back to life, then he has every right to tell us something about God, and we have good reason to trust him. If that tomb was empty, and his enemies, uh, if they could have produced the body, they would have dragged it around Jerusalem and nailed it to the parapets of the temple. It would have, it would have just stopped the whole Christian movement. They didn't because they couldn't, because he wasn't there. He had risen from the dead. John says, I, I touched his body. And so I know you're struggling to believe that. It's like we're all struggling to believe that. And, and yet I, I make room for that, uh, for that doubt. But also, no, it, it's true. It's really true. And, and so once you get that claim right in your head, then it gives Jesus the right to answer all kinds of questions. And the question on John's mind right here is really, what is love? What is God's idea of love? And if we can see God in the eyes of Jesus, then we can see the truest of all loves in the eyes of Jesus. And so today I want to show you a picture of the eyes of Jesus as, um, as imagined by ancient believers. Sometimes it's helpful to get out of our culture. So I want to show you this. Uh, this is called Christ Pentocrator. Let me spell that. P-A-N-T-O-C-R-A-T-O-R. Christ Pentocrator. This comes out of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. This one was found at St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's there today. Probably dates back to the 6th century. This is a very old picture of Jesus. Now, Pentocrator, it's a Greek word. It means ruler of all. It's a Greek word that's used by John only once by Paul, but all the time through the Old Testament. Uh, Pentocrator, ruler of all. It's a, a Greek translation of the word God Almighty or Lord of hosts. This is incredible notion that the first believers claim that you could see the face of the creator, the one who holds time and space together in the face of Jesus. Remarkable. So they paint it. They want to paint that face. They want you to see the eyes. Now, just if you look at this, you notice a few things. The book in his left arm is probably um, a gospel, most likely it's the gospel of John. His right hand, all five fingers are meaningful here. The two fingers that are touching each other represent the two natures, the divine and the human in, in Christ. And the three fingers represents the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. It's, it's there in his hand. But what you really want to notice today are the eyes. Let me, let me zoom in. It may be hard to see from the balcony. Hopefully this is a little bit better. Do you see that his eyes are different? They are not uh, the same. The left eye is wide open. It's fierce. The eyebrow is cocked. This is the eye of judgment. Uh, this is the eye that sees truth. It's a clear-eyed vision of the world. This is the eye of the creator who has seen that there's a purpose for everything, and this eye will not be satisfied until everything achieves the purpose for which it was created. Now look at the right eye. Uh, the right eye is relaxed. It's gentle. Um, this is the eye of mercy, uh, the eye of grace. Uh, this is the eye 
of a, a God who would go to the cross to hold on to those whom he loves, to redeem and restore his creation. This is the eye that forgives sin and that will be eternally committed to those he has created. It's the eye of redemption. These two eyes are important because this is their echoes in this passage of the first chapter of John. There are echoes in this uh, epistle of what John says in verse 14 of chapter 1, which is, we have beheld the glory of the Father, the glory of a, a Father's only Son. He is full of what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. What you see in the eyes of Jesus is a vision of God's perfect love, the truest of all loves, and it is wonderfully and mysteriously a love that can hold together grace and truth at the same time. Both eyes in the same time, in the same place, in the same person. In John's terminology, in the epistle, this is one is the eye of light. In him there is no darkness. And the other is an eye of forgiveness. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ Pentocrator. Your vision of God will shape the way you love. Your theology informs your relationships. That's why we're here, to get a better theology, get a better experience of love, to see Jesus Christ, these eyes, changing our experience of relationship. Many of us today have fallen off into either one of these extremes. If you hold on to one, your love will be sentimentality. If you hold on to the other, your love will be moralism. Sentimentality is when we hold on to uh, the eye of grace. It's all grace, his right eye there. Um, let me show you this picture. Somebody was clever, and they did a mirror image of this. Um, next slide shows the same image. Now, what somebody's done is they've cut Jesus, his two halves together, and then they've mirrored each half. So you can see there are two Jesuses here. You can, you can try to decide which one you think is, is, is uh, really the, the, the Jesus that you're living with in real, in real life. Um, there you see on the right is the right eye that's been doubled. And th this would be a picture, I think, of sentimental love, pure sentimentality. To me, this, this image of Jesus is like Jesus, he's clapping there or something. It's, he's, or he's, a, he's, he's like, like, way to go. No matter what you do, you know, it's, you're, you're always right. It's perfect, my favorite child, you know, he can do no wrong. I think he's about to give out a participation trophy, right? He's just about to, you know, just awesome, you know? But the thing is, sentimentality is just about love as an emotion. That's all it is. It's just a feel-good thing. He's just Jesus trying to make you feel good, you know? The thing, if, if he just wanted to make you feel good, he'd never dare to be honest with you, would he? He'd never, he'd never share the truth with you. And this is a love that wouldn't change you. It wouldn't change you. It just leaves you just the way you are. And it's a love that doesn't last either. When love is just a feeling and the feeling changes, guess what? The love is gone too. Okay, that's the problem with sentimentality. The other picture uh, represents the other eye, the eye of truth. And when you double that over and that's all you've got, you get to me what looks like a linebacker. Don't you think this is like the stocky Jesus? Look at his neck. It's almost like he's got a helmet now with that, that hair. or um, He's got pads on, the, the, the breastplate there. This is the Jesus that would, just like he's ready to, to, to as soon as you flinch, he's, on, he's a lineman, he's just going to rub your nose into the turf, right? You can never be enough for this Jesus. You know, he's constantly measuring you against some standard, and you can never meet it. 
This is the kind of love that is demanding. This is the kind of performance-based love. And with this kind of love, it won't change you either. What it will do is it will just make you retreat into fear and discouragement. It's not going to last because you can't meet the standard. And when you or the other person in your relationship can't meet the standard, guess what? The relationship's over there as well because you failed. Now, that's not... That's not the love uh, that is tangible. That's not the love John is writing about. Wait, let's, put the, let's go back and see uh, Christ's pentocrator put back together. This, a love that's full of grace and truth, is the love that changes our lives. This is a love of God who loves us so much, he accepts us just completely the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. Second, tangible love is not just love the way God sees it, but it's love expressed in human hands. Let's talk about the word tangible. This is used intentionally. Love expressed in human hands. Would you look at Jesus' hands here? Because this is what tells another part of the story, the story of fellowship. As I've said already, John uses this word fellowship. I write these things so that you may have fellowship. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. That Greek word is koinonia. Koinonia means to share something in common, to participate to have a common life together. And this is, koinonia is depicted particularly in the right hand. And the gospel is in the left. And in the right hand, we see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the koinonia, the communion of God, in three, one God in three persons. And then the two fingers touching together, the divine nature and the human nature, God has koinonia with us. And so our fellowship the fellowship of which John writes, the fellowship of the church is right there in Jesus' right hand. It's important for you to know, John is advocating for the church. And I want to tell you, this message is needed today. He's advocating for the church. It, not just the truth, but the church, which is, which, which, which is a concrete, gritty set of relationships. The church, an experience of real fallen people loved by God living together. The church flesh and blood people intentionally following Jesus together. John says we need tangible love. Now, that's transformational. It's that that transformed John's life. You know, I said earlier they called John the apostle of love by the end of his life. You know what they called him at the beginning of his life? Son of thunder. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome, <laughs> right? Would you like to be a son? Of, you know, we don't we don't embroider sons of thunder on the back of our choir robes. In uh, you know, it's just leather and studs to me. That's and it was that's because he, he had a prickly personality. That's how that's the raw material. John started was a son of thunder. Jesus called him that. Well, in, in, in all the instances we have of John, early part of the Gospels, whenever John shows up, it's mean. John turns out to be uh, prejudiced, uh, angry, insensitive self-focused, when they pass by Samaria and they don't receive the kind of hospitality they like, John turns to Jesus and says, hey, can we call down the fire now? <laughs> Lovely guy. Uh, when someone's praying for recovery from an oppressive spirit, John says, you can't do that. You're not with us. Hey, Jesus, tell him to stop. But he becomes the apostle of love. Why? This experience a concrete experience of relationship with Jesus and the other 12 that Jesus put this little circle of friends. His proximity to Jesus, flesh and blood Jesus, 
uh, over time. He ends up at the end of the gospel on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper, and he refers to himself modestly as the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't mean that exclusively, but he means, I finally got it. I'm loved. I'm completely loved. Grace and truth loved. And that became my identity. And so you can see the transformation in his life. Now, what John knows is Jesus is now ascended, and he's writing a letter to people in Asia Minor, and he can't say to them, you can have the same experience I have, because Jesus isn't flesh and blood there. But on the other hand, he does say, you can have the same experience I have, because just as Jesus was physically present to me in his flesh and blood body, Jesus is physically present to you, he writes, in his flesh and blood church. I want you to absorb that. Because it only means that when we are physically present with a circle of believers, remember what Jesus says, when two or three are gathered, I will be present. Jesus has pledged himself to this community and every community of his followers when they gather. There's a sacramental, mysterious presence, a mysterious presence. Paul calls it the body of Christ. Love expressed in human hands. God's love touching you and me through one another. Bernard of Clairvaux said this is what the church ought to be. The church ought to be a school of love. And I like that phrase. I borrowed it for our whole series. Church ought to be a school of love where people learn to love the best, which is God, and to love fully, which is our whole heart, soul, and mind. Our purpose together is to help each other grow in love, to love more, to love better. In this case, then, our relationships become the classroom. Jesus becomes our teacher, and we try to look at each other with both eyes, and we try to touch each other with tangible love. I met a young professor up in Canada this summer, and I was so impressed with his spirit. Uh, He was so patient. He could handle criticism. It didn't get under his skin. Uh, he made time for students and faculty. He was extremely thoughtful and continued to work hard and, and read. And I thought, that's a faculty member that's a great model. So I, I, I got curious. I found out about him that he lives in an intentional Christian community with a group of guys. And, and they have, he, he, this is the language he used. He said, we have a rule of life. It's like a rule of life. What is that? He said, well, we have agreed on a list of practices that we will take up and encourage each other in on a daily basis, knowing that these practices will shape our lives, that they'll they'll help us grow in love for God, love for our spouses, love for our children, love for our neighbors, love for our coworkers. And we we, we encourage each other. We pray for each other in all of these practices daily. I thought, wow, man, that sounds hard to me. But you know, I can tell it's showing up in this man's life. And I want that in my life as well. A a school of life where love the way God sees. It gets expressed in human hands. So I want to look at you through the right eye of Jesus, which means uh, the eye of grace. Your brokenness will never scare me away. And no matter what you do, I'll always be ready to forgive. In the school of love, I want to look at you with the left eye of Jesus, which is the eye that says, I don't want to get comfortable with anything that separates you from God's goodness and love. And you can count on me 
never to be satisfied with you until you express your truest self, who you really are, who God created you to be and redeemed you to be, and who you will one day prove to be when Jesus Christ returns. And in the school of love, I want to give you permission to look at me with those same two eyes. So that when things get hard in relationships at church, uh, we don't check out. We give each other grace and truth, and we go deeper into God's love. This is tangible love. It's God's vision of love in human hands. Tangible love. And we all need it. You may need it for your roommate who, when you're not around, uses your toothbrush. It's a true story. You may need it for your cranky neighbor who's just always got a fight or a complaint. You may need it because you're going to venture out into a marriage. Heaven knows you're going to need love there. Maybe you've got a new child or a sick child and you have to get up at night. You're going to need love. You're going to need it to love your aging parents. You're going to need it to love your neighbors when they are refugees coming from foreign places, people with mental illness or people who have uh, hygiene issues. We could say to God, would you touch my relationships? He promises to do so. But he doesn't just zap them. I wish he would. I wish he would just zap, and there my marriage is all fixed. What he does is he says, George, I want you to come to my school of love. I want you to get involved with the church. I want you to find a circle of people that will walk with you in grace and truth. It's going to change you, and then you're going to take that love into your marriage, and that will change it. And I'll touch that relationship that way. I was in a coffee shop on Friday night, as I oftentimes am, and I was uh, doing, trying to do some work, but there was a live band that was really good, and a couple started to dance, and they were so elegant, and you know dancers, you can just, they touch each other in just the right way, and, and uh, it was very tangible. What happened, though, was it was almost like a, uh, what do you call it, uh, when the whole thing breaks out, everybody's involved with it on video, I can't remember now, I'm blanking on the, yeah, flash mob, yeah, because all these couples started to dance, they were all doing it, I thought, what is this, I finally had to ask, and so it says, oh, yeah, this is what we call West Coast Swing, I guess I know East Coast Swing, because I didn't recognize it, but West Coast Swing is a beautiful dance, and uh, turns out they all come from the same dance school that they go a certain night of the week and they all don't know each other. And I thought, that's it. That's the school. That's why they can do it so easily here because they go to school together. Because in the school is the place where when it got hard, they pushed through the pain. Um, they were tired. They were embarrassed. They stepped on each other's toes. They were hurting. They were cranky. And they pushed through the challenge of it. They didn't check out. They went deep. And now uh, when they're out in the world, so to speak, they make it look so effortless and so attractive and appealing. I, I literally, I wrote down West Coast Swing. And I said to my wife that night, we got to go to dance school. <laughs> she didn't say yes yet, but I'll work on her. We don't, friends, go to school to live in school. We go to school to live in the world. But this is our school. Look around you. These are our classmates. And I want to invite you to do some homework this week. First assignment, this feels good. The first assignment is to read First John. Read the whole thing. Read it in one sitting. Take 20 minutes this week. You can do it and read First John. Then read each section ahead of our worship these next seven weeks. And then secondly, I want you to find your people. I want you to find some people who will walk with you in grace and truth as you endeavor to grow in love for God and neighbor. Um, when I get you ready for, for Lent, March 1st, we want every single person here in a small group for the, for the Kindred Project. And so we're going to need you to open up your small group called New People. We need you to find a small group. We need you to lead new small groups, all of that. So find your people. It's going to take some time. Let's get ready. 
Well, I want to close by reading the words of one of our great teachers, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He said that love is the most uh, powerful, uh, he's the most durable power in the world. And in his book, Strength to Love, he quotes Napoleon Bonaparte, who I suppose knew all about love and its power, and I suppose wished he had the capacity to live with it. But wistfully, this is what he says about Jesus, Napoleon Bonaparte. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have built great empires, but upon what do they depend? They depend on, on force. But centuries ago, Jesus, Jesus started an empire that was built on love. And even to this day, millions will die for him. Let's be among those who will live for him. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we want to look deep into your face, not the face of the God that we wish were or the God that, the face of the God that we fear is, but the God of, the face of the God who really is and who has come in pursuit of us to embrace us tangibly with grace and truth. We pray that you pour out your Holy Spirit, that we know the fullness of communion with you as we enjoy communion with one another. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.